Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 6th of February 2023 and this is episode 287. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian and author Dr Michael Senior about his recent book on Fromel and the village of Lee in Buckinghamshire. Michael spoke to me from his home in Buckinghamshire. Michael, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yes, uh, Tom, um, I'm delighted to be on this. Um, well, I, I was born in Yorkshire, but uh, work took me gradually southwards. And um, for the last 30 years, my wife and I have been living in uh, Buckinghamshire. I was uh, for 40 years in the paper and packaging industry, a variety of jobs which I did enjoy, in fact. I retired in 2001, and now half my time is uh, taken up with my interest in the First World War. Uh, but apart from that, and the family, of course, um, I like traveling, theater, music, um, fell walking, and I play social golf, very social golf, in fact. Um, well, I became interested in the First World War. Well, as long as I can remember, I've been interested in it. Um, my, my family does have some military connections. My grandfather was a regular soldier, uh, spent most of his time in India. My father and uncles were all in the Second World War. In fact, I did have an uncle who enlisted when he was 16 in the First World War in a cyclist battalion, and thankfully he um, survived. But I've always been interested in the First World War. I've read everything I could lay my hands on. I suppose if there was a tipping point, it was uh, the 1964 BBC TV uh, Great War series. The 26 episodes of that, I, and I watched every one with, uh, with, with great interest. The, the fascination to me about the Great War is its immensity, geographical, political, logistics, technical, and of course the horrific casualty list. But uh, to me, uh, the main interests are the individual human stories that make up the history of the war. I I've just been uh, looking at the latest Western Front Association Stand 2, and there are a number of uh, stories in there great interest. Uh, there are an endless number of them. Um, and, there and there's just the constant challenge of really trying to understand the Great War. Um, so, so my interest comes from all sorts of sources, but um, it's with me now. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about the Great War and how it affected where you currently live, which is the village of Lee. Now, can you tell us where Lee is? Yeah, we we um, lived in the Lee for 20 years. It's, um, it's, it's a beautiful hilltop village in the Chilterns. It's about 10 miles south of Aylesbury, about eight miles north of uh, Amersham. And in fact, it's made up of five very small hamlets, uh, the Lee, Lee Common, Hunts Green, King's Ash, uh, and the wonderfully named Swan Bottom. It, it, the population is uh, 
is about 750, which in fact is the same as it was during the First World War. So so why write a book on the village? Well, the short answer is because uh, there's, there's a story to tell. Um, when we when we moved to the Lee, um, we lived uh, opposite the War Memorial, and there were the names of 30 young men on that War Memorial, and because I was interested, I asked about them, and the, the local word was that all 30 had been killed at the same time, at the same place. Now, that sounded, um, well, possible, but high, uh, unlikely, because, in fact, two of the names of the dead, one was in the Royal Flying Corps, and the other was in the Navy, so it's unlikely that all 30 were killed at the same time in the same place. But um, it did emerge when I was looking into it, and in fact, of the 30, nine of those 30 were killed in an attack towards a village called Fromel, which is in French Flanders, about eight miles south of Lille, an attack that took place on the 19th of July, 1916. So that raised questions to me. Uh, who were these men? Where did they live in the village? Which regiment did they belong to? And and what was all this about Fromel? Why why Fromel? As, as the story developed, um, it became clear that that same story, the story of these men in the league, um, would be the same as the story from hundreds of villages and small towns around the UK. I mean, it was about um, local friends who'd grown up together and worked together. When the war started, they enlisted together in the local uh, regiment, trained together, and they were sent to the Western Front together to take part in a, what turned out to be generally a costly attack, and they were killed together. So there was certainly a story there, and it seemed to me there was a book to be written, which I did. So let's go back to 1914. What was Lee like in terms of its geography, economy, and, and the people who lived in the village? Were there any sort of local celebrities? Well, definitely. And the definite character, the dominant character in the Lee in 1914 was Sir Arthur Liberty, the Liberty who founded the uh, Regent Street store in London. And uh, he'd made his fortune and uh, decided in 1898 to buy the manor house in the Lee. Um, and uh, he, he set about extending the manor house and, in fact, developing the whole village. Um, the villagers uh, were mostly his tenants. He bought a pretty well the whole of the land in the Lee and around the Lee. And he started to shape it in what he thought a village should be like. It was a sort of a, uh, a Merry England, really. Um, there wasn't a village green, so he made sure that there was a village green uh, by dint of knocking down a row of cottages and moving moving the pub from one end of a, a grass field to another and then putting some fencing up. So he created the village green. Um, he did lots of other things. He, he started the village flower show. He... Um, he gave uh, land so that the cricket club had a cricket field. Uh, the footballers and the hockey players had their own field. Uh, and uh, he also started the Lee magazine, which was quite a, a novel thing in those days and uh, multi-denominational. And it recorded all the things that went on in the Lee. And actually, that, that turned out to be very useful to me 
in putting the book together because uh, there was a full set of Lee magazines right the way through the war recording what went on in the Lee and news from the men at the front. Um, one, of the, one of the things that uh, Liberty inaugurated was the Lee Week. Now, the Lee Week was a very manor house thing. It was Liberty friends uh, who came for a week of the August bank holiday weekend, which was at the beginning of August each year then. And they uh, played games, they danced, I suppose they drank quite a lot, really enjoyed themselves. Um, as, as they said, it was a golden age for those who had the gold. Now, one of the people who Liberty invited to the Lee Week was his nephew, Ivor Stewart. Uh, Ivor Stewart, personable young man, and one of the things about the Liberties, uh, Arthur and Emma Liberty, is that they didn't have any children. Uh, and they undertook uh, to educate Ivor Stewart. They supported him through Winchester College and Christchurch, Oxford. Uh, and he became the son that they didn't have. Uh, he came with his friends, many from, from Oxford, to the Lee Week. And they all, they all had a, a tremendously happy time. But with, that was very much the manner set. They were wealthy and they had the education. But the other group in the village was, were of course, the villagers. Uh, and um, something like 80% of them uh, worked on the land, uh, mainly just as labourers. So life must have been quite near subsistence level. They, they got uh, water from the well. Um, they had oil lamps only. Um, but nevertheless, they were coherent group, we went to the village school, to the church together, and um, and the village was a really coherent place. He, Liberty was a good landlord, everybody said so, uh, and uh, he was extremely paternalistic uh, and, and, and a caring man. Um, so that was that was r- roughly what the the Lee was about in 1914. On the outbreak of war in 1914, what was the primary unit that men in the village enlisted in? Yeah, um, the um, the men from the village, of course, went into various units. The, the, the Alec chose one, uh, the Oxen Bucks was an obvious one, or they were assigned to various units. But the greatest uh, number um, followed uh, Ivor, Ivor Stewart. Um, into the second Bucks Battalion. Um, I should say that by that date, just before the war, uh, Ivor Stewart was made the heir of, um, uh, of uh, Arthur Liberty. And so he took on the name, which was throughout, throughout the war, his war, uh, of Ivor Stewart Liberty. And members of the Liberty family still live uh, in the league. Um, he went into the second Bucks Battalion. And he, and he was followed by a number of the villagers. Arthur Liberty and the then vicar of the league, Constantine Phipps, uh, were really the establishment and they encouraged the young men to, uh, to, to join up. Uh, Ivor himself went around the village saying, Oh, come on, join up to the young men. Um, it's, it'll be just like a holiday, he said. Uh, and of course, at that time, early in the war, um, the feeling was that it would be over by Christmas, uh, which uh, it wasn't. Well, the Lee supplied three officers to the Second Bucks Battalion, which was the TA regiment in the local. Uh, it was Ivor Stewart Liberty himself, who became a captain. 
his brother-in-law, Roger Cummings, and the vicar's son, uh, Charles Phipps. From among the villagers, um, men were, and I'll name them, Harry Pratt, Sidney Dwight, Percy Price, Edward Sharp, Harry Harding, Arnold Morris, and two brothers from Lee Common, Ralph and Arthur Brown, who both of them became company sergeant majors. Now those names were the names of the men who were killed, the nine men who were killed from men, from L, and, and also Charles Phipps was killed. I was still at liberty, in fact, was shot early on in the attack in the leg, and eventually had to have his leg amputated. I'll tell you about the second book's battalion. I, it was formed. Um, there was a first book's battalion, but um, that went off to France in May 1915. And a second book's battalion uh, was formed in the September of, of 1914, when the first books had gone off training. The second books spent 16 months uh, in England, south of England, um, on uh, carrying out exercises, drills and so forth. And um, uh, they, uh, there was a section that the morale was, was high. It was local men uh, officered by local gentry. But after they'd been training and doing defence work in England for 16 months, they were really keen to get to the real war. And um, Charles Phipps, the vicar's son, uh, in May 16, wrote to his father saying, Our division starts going to France on Monday. It'll be rather fun out there. I've got such a ripping lot of men in my platoon. Now, the division he referred to was the 61st South Midlands Territorial uh, Division, a division made up of tier units from, um, from Oxfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Berkshire, Gloucestershire, and Warwickshire. Uh, and on May 25th, 1916, uh, they crossed the channel. Now, to most of these Lee men, but all of them pretty well, that must have been an amazing experience. Probably they'd hardly been out of the county before, let alone out of the country. Um, and um, Charles Phipps, who censored the letters of the men, uh, sent over his own letter to his parents, saying that he'd read one letter, which read, got over the duck pond safely. A lot of the boys were sick, but dear mother, I was bloody sick. He said, I like letters. And by the 5th of June, 1916, they'd reached a small town of Lavanti in, in northern France, French Flanders. And uh, that was just behind the front line. And across the front line and no man's land was the village of Promel, of course, in German hands. But actually, they were a Bavarian regiment. It was the 6th Bavarian Reserve Division that had been in that area for the past 14 months. And that was a pretty critical fact because they'd been able to make um, very strong defences right through the front of their lines. Why was the Fremel attack carried out is, the, uh, is a pretty key question. Um, and the action was uh, essentially uh, a diversionary attack. It was aimed at keeping the German troops from being able to be transferred down to the Somme area, where the Great Battle of the Somme had started some two weeks earlier on the 1st of July. 
Now, Fromelli is some 40 miles north of the Somme. Uh, but um, General Haig, commander of the British Expedition Force, had been informed by his intelligence services that some general German troops had been um, already moved south from that from an area. And so it was essential that no further German troops should be moved if it was quite possible to, to stop them to become uh, reinforcements. So the boundary of the uh, British First Army, which was under General Monroe, and the Second Army under General Plumer, was just in front of the Lavanti from L section. And Haig ordered uh, them, Monroe and Plumer, to get their heads together and make a plan and carry out an attack, which was to be the diversionary attack to stop Germans moving troops. Monroe and Plumer agreed that the action should uh, take place towards Fromel and that it should be carried out by the British 61st Division, which was part of the 1st Army, and the Australian, Australian 5th Division, which was part of the 2nd Army, that were next to one another in the line. And the frontage of the whole attack was about two and a half miles. For those who haven't been to the Fromel area, I strongly recommend because you can actually see um, the whole stretch of the battle area and can see how the attack developed. Now, little time had been given to prepare this uh, operation, and it actually turned out to be a very muddled affair right from the beginning. The first plan was, uh, was uh, drawn up by uh, a general Haking, who reported to Monroe and was positioned in that, and it aimed at taking not only Fromel, but he was also wanting to carry on and try and get Bull Bear Ridge, which was just behind Fromel. But general headquarters turned that down as being too ambitious. Then it became a bit more complicated because Monroe let it be known that, in fact, he didn't really want to attack at Fromel. He wanted to attack elsewhere on the first army front, perhaps till 17 suggest, but GHQ turned that down. Then again there was a twist because Monroe said, well, um, we ought really to do just an artillery bombardment. That will, that will uh, perhaps stop troops being sent down by the Germans, but GHQ, GHQ didn't agree with that. And then, amazingly, GHQ proposed that it shouldn't be a two-division attack, but a three-division attack. But again, that was changed because they decided that there was a lack of artillery to support that. So it went back to a two-division attack, and that was actually planned for the 17th July. And the assault troops, including our men from the Lee of the Second Bucks, were moved into the trenches. And it was at that point that GHQ announced that they didn't think an attack was necessary anyway, which was more than confusing. And Monroe and Haking insisted that the attack should go ahead because the troops were already there and geared up, which it did on the 19th of July at 6 p.m. Now, apart from all those initial planning confusions, there were certainly other important problems. Since the attack was being carried out at the junction of two armies, not only two armies, but of course two corps and two assault divisions, there was great potential for communication difficulty, and that turned out to be the case. Also, the center of the attack 
was in fact the key German defence position in that area. It was called the Sugarloaf, and that was defended by concrete bunkers, no more than about 25 yards apart, right along that front, each having machine gun posts. Thirdly, um, two days before the attack was to take place, which was originally planned for the 17th, um, the, there was rain. And in that area, rain means mud. So no man's land, which was absolutely dead flat, uh, became very muddy. Shell holes came filled with water. Moreover, the mist that the rains caused stopped the artillery from registering uh, the guns on the enemy line. So actually the first proposal of the 17th of July attack was postponed. It was postponed twice in fact because of the mist and the fact that the artillery couldn't register and, uh, and it was eventually decided to go on the 19th. So wherever the problems, no man's land along the two and a half mile stretch of front varied in width. But the two edges of the two and a half mile stretch, it was about 200 yards wide, which was considered then to be an acceptable length to attack across. But in the centre, uh, particularly in front of the Sugarloaf, a critical point of the defence system, it was 400, uh, a tremendous way to go, certainly across flatland, which was, which was bombed. And all these problems were made worse because uh, within a few days of the proposed attack, GHQ moved the first Anzac troops who were going to take part in the attack and they were experienced uh, down to the Somme. They took part in the Pozier attack and they were replaced by the inexperienced second Anzac troops. Um, and it was their first occasion on the Western Front. Many of them were green troops and certainly uh, the artillery was uh, very inexperienced. So altogether, uh, the Fromel attack had a bad start. Yes, you're, you're, you're suggesting things aren't going to go very well in, in this, uh, this offensive. So tell us, how did it pan out and uh, what was the impact on our men from Lee? Yes, well, to summarise the attack, um, the British artillery actually failed to destroy much of the enemy wire or the concrete bunkers. There have been about 75 of these concrete bunkers um, erected uh, along the German front line, more or less in front of the second bucks and the Australian. And it was later discovered that of those 75, only seven were really badly damaged. And the wire in front of the Sugarloaf was not, was not damaged. Uh, it's worth saying that uh, opposite the Second Bucks Battalion, who were themselves to attack the Sugar, uh, was the 16th Bavarian uh, Infantry uh, Reserve Regiment. And a member of that was Adolf Hitler. Um, and he almost certainly took part in the Fromel attack. Um, the Sugarloaf dominated the front line. Um, its machine guns could, could fire up and down almost the whole of the, of the front. Uh, and that was untrue. Now, the attack took place at 6 p.m. because the artillery had wanted time to try and register its guns and to break the wire during the morning and the afternoon. Whereas, as I say, that largely failed. But there was some success at the two ends of the attack area. The Australians to the north 
um, managed to break through the line. And the sev second, seventh Warwick down to the south end, they bro broke through the line, remembering that both of those were over 200 yards. But for the rest of the frontage, especially in front of the Sugarloaf, um, hardly anybody got to the German line. And um, the second Dutch battalion attacking the Sugarloaf um, were mown down, as were their colleagues on either side of them. Uh, and um, they didn't get to the Sugarloaf. And in fact, as we as we know now, of course, nine of the men were killed there from the lead. So tell us a bit. Um, the attack was called off. Uh, yes. Sorry, sorry, Michael, carry on. I, I was going to say that the attack was called off by um, by General Haking, who was in command of the thing, uh, at 5 a.m. because it was clearly a failure. And by 8 a.m., the 6th Bavarian Reserve Division was in complete control of their front lines. And the trench positions, therefore, after 14 hours, were in exactly the same position as they had been at the beginning of the attack. During that time, um, the casualty rate was uh, 1,550 British, 5,500 Australian, and the Germans had lost fewer than 2,000. The Burke's Battalion lost half their men. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a traumatic time for everybody, especially when the news got back to the Lee. So tell us about how the news was received in Lee itself in the, in the latter part of 1916. The, the news of the attack and of the losses from the Lee dribbled back, really, gradually reached the village. And it was um, traumatised. Um, in addition to the nine men uh, from the Lee who were killed at Cromel, uh, the same week, two men were killed down on the Somme. In the Lee. Um, it was a village in mourning, that's what the local paper said. And um, the vicar, Constantine Fitz, who had been going around uh, consoling families who had lost the men, learned as he was going around, of course, that he'd lost his own son, Charles Fitz. Um, Everybody in the village knew someone had been killed. So it was a, a terrible time for the Lee. And what was the legacy of Fromel's on Lee? How, how, did, how did the village uh, commemorate the men who fell on that day? You know, the Lee, geographically anyway, looks very much today as it did in 1914. And uh, Sir Arthur Liberty would recognise it. The main legacy, of course, is the um, war memorial on the village green and Lady Liberty uh, gave a portion of the village green on which to erect the granite Celtic cross. Um, it cost 350 pounds but it was all donated by local villagers. Um, in, the, in the longer term, fairly recently, a form of twinning has been arranged between the Lee and uh, Fromel and uh, visits between People from the two villages regularly take place. Of course, the Lee Weeks, the famous Lee Weeks, pre-war Lee Weeks of the Liberties, um, were never repeated. Um, there were just too many empty chairs. Yes, uh, Ivor Stuart Liberty did say, well, they were indeed the saddest and the proudest days of the village. And my final question is, where can people get your book from? 
Well, uh, it's published by <laughs> Pen and Sword Books of Barnsley. I'm sure they'd be delighted to uh, send a copy. <laughs> and, uh, uh, or, but you can, I've got to say, you can get it uh, on uh, Amazon. It was first published in 2004, uh, before Fromel was well known at all, in fact. And um, uh, it, uh, it's now in its, uh, I'm pleased to say, in its third edition. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>